0: SPS audio is supported by advertising.
1: I couldn't be religious and gay.
3: Welcome to Eyes on Gilead, the book club. She said you could believe in Gilead or you could believe in God, but not both. We, of course, are a podcast dedicated to The Handmaid's Tale, but we've got a very lengthy wait for season four of the TV series. And Margaret Atwood has just released a sequel to her iconic book.
2: One question about The Handmaid's Tale that came up repeatedly is, how did Gilead fall? The Testaments was written
3: in response
2: to this question.
3: So, of course, we couldn't resist delving back into this weird world one more time this year. I'm Fiona Williams, and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV here at SBS. And I'm rejoined by my fellow resistors, Natalie Hambley of SBS Voices. Hi. Sana Kadar of ABC Life. Hello. Haley Island of SBS On Demand. Hi. Hello. And one very unsnoozy Baby Greta, who <laughs> has had a growth spurt in the month since we've <laughs> been here. So, as I say, we have just read The Testaments, the 400-page tome that wraps it all up, wraps mm-hmm. up all of The Handmaid's Tale. And I should say at this point, if it's not obvious, we're doing a book club about this book, so we're going to get into the detail of the plot. So if you haven't read The Testaments and you plan to read The Testaments, hit pause, go and read the book or listen to the audiobook with Anne Out and come back and rejoin us because we are going to get into the nitty-gritty on this epic book. So... A recap for those who have read it The Testament takes place more than 15 years after the events of The Handmaid's Tale, and the theocratic regime of the Republic of Gilead maintains its grip on power, but there are signs that it is beginning to rot from within. At this crucial moment, the lives of three radically different women converge with potentially explosive results. Two have grown up as part of the first generation to come of age in the New Order. And the testimonies of these two women are joined by a third voice, a woman who wields power through the ruthless accumulation and deployment of secrets. So as the Testaments unfolds, Margaret Atwood opens up the innermost workings of Gilead as each woman is forced to come to terms with who she is and how far she will go for what she believes. Well, (laughs) let's do our round the room. What do we think? Let's go first impressions and what stood out for you. Natalie, I'm looking at you.
0: I feel like this book is such a gift for us Handmaid style tragics because we tried to guess earlier this season about what would the book be like and what would be in it. Yeah. And we like we completely got it wrong because of course we did. <laughs> but like if I could have had a wish list, I would have said I really want to see Hannah and Nicole and find out what happens to them when they, you know, when they're like, you know, 15 years in the future and it's like she did that. Mm. So, I'm thrilled. Okay. In terms of what stood out, that's a really that's a really hard one to answer. That's why I'm not going for <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting to see how it is so much different from the TV show because it has to be a lot quieter and in some ways some of the parts that made my heart race and made me get stressed were the sort of things that wouldn't actually work on TV. Mm. So, like anyway. What? Do do you have an example? Um I think in the TV show we we are always quite stressed every episode, you know, there's always that sort of heightened drama and you, and you don't know what's going to happen. I kind of didn't really have that in the book, and I didn't really get that until the very end when mm-hmm. um we got to figure out if what, what we're going to call them. I'm just going to say Hannah and Nicole when Hannah and Nicole were doing their big escape from Gilead and at some point they were putting on normal clothes, I'll say, and and her tattoo got caught in the clothing mm. and I thought for sure that that micro dot had fallen out mm. and I was stressed from then on. <laughs> I just I thought this whole thing has been a waste. And I thought <laughs> they're going to die or they're finally gonna to go to that tattoo and try and find it and it's gone and Gilead is just gonna continue and I was just so dismayed and I thought, How would you show that on TV? And I yeah.
3: thought Because it just describes the jumper getting a little snagged
0: yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. That's... Um and then it turned out Differently, I'll say. <laughs> Differently. <laughs> All right. We are going to spoil, but maybe you don't want to go there right yet.
1: Uh, Sana, first impression and what stood out for you? Um, can I just say I agree with you, Natalie, first, um, that that river crossing bit, that was the bit where my like heart was stopping as I was reading and I was like, oh, I hope they make it. And that, to me, actually reminded me of the scene when Emily's crossing mm. with baby Nicole mm. and how my heart stopped then. So for me, it was a little bit different. But OK, what stood out for me most or my first reaction Um All I've ever wanted is for June to get out of Gilead and be reunited with her family in Canada and be safe and happy. And I'm so happy that that's where the book ends, that she, you know, she gets all of that. So I'm really thrilled to know that The Handmaid's Tale, you know, eventually when the series ends, that's sort of the ending we get to. I'm very, I feel very safe and, you know, happy about that. Um, In terms of what stood out to me, well, there's a lot. That is a hard question. I guess I'll say what a different reading experience this book was to The Handmaid's Tale. Because The Handmaid's Tale had a really, like, fragmented narrative, right? And it was very, came in and out of time, and it sort of, um, the narrative, how it was structured, reflected, like, June's really scattered and desperate thoughts. Mm. But this was really written like a thriller. And so it was a really easy read in a way that The Handmaid's Tale took a bit more work to get into. And so I wasn't expecting that, and I quite enjoyed that. I whipped right through it. <laughs> so that's, you know, a, a larger scale thing that stuck out to me.
3: Yeah,
2: okay. Haiti. That was actually going to be my first impression as well. It's just how different these two books are. I reread The Handmaid's Tale again recently in the lead up to um, The Testaments being released. So it's quite fresh in my mind again. And apart from the final chapter being a symposium 200 years in the future (laughs) and that nice mirroring between books, boy, are they so different. Like you said, The Handmaid's Tale is so... Uh, like claustrophobic and insular and you you only have uh, Offred's point of view and yeah this new book couldn't be any further from that you get all these details about the inner workings of Gilead you you finally get things explained to you it kind of in the way that you had to work a lot of things out for yourself in The Handmaid's Tale everything's just kind of laid out for you in the testament so that Mm -hmm. was just a really a really big contrast for me. Both good in different ways.
1: (laughs) There's a clue as to why the two books are so different. And it's sort of, it's explained a little bit in the symposium section of each book, Mm. where we learn that in The Handmaid's Tale, you know, these are a collection of tapes that were found that they sort of organized in what they thought was the approximate order of what Mm -hmm. they were meant to go in. So I think that's part of, explains why The Handmaid's Tale was that fragmented kind of narrative, Mm. whereas these are, you you know, a written account that's found that's all intact and then recordings that are all intact as well. So I think that goes into explaining, you know, the world and, and why she created it that way. Mm. Margaret mm. Atwood, anyways. Mm. Do you have a standout, Heidi?
2: I've got lots of tiny standout moments, but nothing that I can kind of summarise succinctly now without going into deeper conversations. So yeah. I'm going to stick with something fairly brief. And it was um, the way in the symposium, the speaker essentially apologized yeah. for the sexist remarks he'd made in the <laughs> in the um symposium given at the end of the original novel i yep. thought that was a really great moment because that had always jarred with me and made the handmaid's tale a little bit sad in my mind this idea that in the future gilead had fallen and yet this like Sexism just still just penetrated every aspect of society. I think he makes some comment about the underground female road being the underground frail road or something like that. So his apology over that and... Um Acknowledgement that things were changing and that women were in leadership roles now, etc., etc., was just like a cute little mm. nod to that previous comment in the Handmaid's Tale. I liked that.
3: Yeah, and because that was always the cruel irony of the book, yeah. like it's this incredible story of female suffering and you know endeavors. But yeah, at the end of it, even the name of the book, the Tale, was a pun. Like it was kind of about her ass. <laughs> so it was yeah. Like the, he makes the joke in the in the coda of the first book. But yeah, nice nicely spotted. So. First impression from me, I'm not sure. Like I didn't love it. Well, I think I don't. The happy ending doesn't sit well with me. (gasps) What? Why? Maybe this is where I'm the ultimate Debbie Downer. I, I don't buy that they all got reunited. (laughs) This is a story of
2: triumph.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes, I
3: love that Lydia is the linchpin and I love that she's this unseen, like it's her that's building the secrets and I totally buy that she would be keeping records on everyone. But, um, yeah, it's my first impression. I Yeah. Didn't sit well with me that there's the suggestion that they're all reunited at the end. Anyway, we can get into that. But I don't have a single standout myself either because I also struggled with this is not a sequel to the... T- this is not building on the TV show. This is a sequel to the book. <laughs> so I always had to frame how much of the characters were written about in the book rather than the Lydia we know mm. and I love and uh, <laughs> the other characters. But I enjoyed that we got more of Judd because he was um, mm. mentioned in the coder of the first book as a potential he might have been Fred. He might have been the commander she was talking about. So I liked that that was teased out a bit more and, yeah, in the way he's characterised clearly... Ooh, clearly not that that's not the he wouldn't have been married to serena let's put it that way um so i liked that that filled in that blank of this random character that was mentioned in the first book yeah and i'm intrigued by ada as well but we can yes, maybe talk too. a bit more about her hmm. so all right that's a very quick <laughs> pace of our first impressions but where do we start do we start with the biggie do we start with lydia or? oh yeah we have to yeah, yeah i mean I, I think we probably can't not look I read the book book, not the audio book. But did, did anyone here read the listen to the audio
0: book? Yeah, I did the audio book. Well, I actually, I actually did both. I, I sort of read half of the audio book and then I switched to the <laughs> book book. But um, I've got to say, the audio book was actually really, really good. And Dad is amazing as Aunt Lydia. And also I found it a lot clearer to be able to keep up on who was speaking in which chapter. When I was reading it, it might take me a couple of pages to figure out that actually this, this was Hannah, it wasn't actually Nicole.
1: Yeah, the voices were quite similar, actually.
0: Whereas in the audiobook, it was it was really clear. Like, you knew right from the very beginning of the chapter who was actually speaking. And not only that, it actually, when I was listening to it, it felt like I was watching season four of The Handmaid's Tale, which is why I'll say, to your point, Fiona, is about how it's a sequel to the book, not the show. I think it's a sequel to both. Mm. Like... Mm. Same. Um, and so I, it's very aware there's a show around this world yeah. Yeah, that yeah, syncs was, up in various ways. I was kind of really surprised. I really didn't think that Margaret Atwood would do that. I just, I kind of thought the sequel would be something completely different in the world and it would be so separate to the TV show. And I was actually quite surprised mm-hmm. that, you know, Baby Nicole is such a big thing.
3: Well, and true. Yes. Um, we can maybe get into more about how it does sync up and other otherwise things, in, things that we've seen aren't even... Mentioned, which Uh,
0: makes me though so conflicted about Aunt Lydia because I feel like the Aunt Lydia I've seen in the TV show versus the Aunt Lydia in the books, I know, (laughs) are a bit different. Or or, or where I struggle, how I'm feeling about them now is different, and that's yeah, I'm feeling very conflicted about it. Yeah,
1: I was wondering whether I owe Aunt Lydia a bit more, like you know, with June, how she had that whole arc, the season where she was getting a bit nasty basically and and we were, I was quite forgiving of that I was like you know she's just struggling to survive in a world that's been thrust on her and the same is essentially true of Lydia and so I'm trying to grapple with like do I owe her the same forgiveness I've been so like quick to give June and then that doesn't sit well with me because I've seen her be so horrible that uh, yeah I'm I'm struggling a little bit with um Lydia's switch I I like it overall I'm I think mm. that's a really interesting switch that she's made but uh, yeah, it really made me confront how I feel about Lydia and whether I owe her a bit more than what I've been
2: willing to give her. The book kind of suggests that she's been playing the long game the yeah. whole time. Because when and she's, how. Yeah, <laughs> like for like 15 or what more years, because there's that scene when she's going through the process of being tortured at the beginning at the stadium and whatnot, she makes some comment about how she's going to... That, Essentially, she get she vows revenge. Yeah. Vows revenge. And not until the end does it actually kind of come about. So she is playing the long game. It's it's sort of, yeah.
3: Totally. She's been keeping notes on everyone the whole time. Yeah. And I, I actually do buy that as Lydia. part of the character of Lydia that, from the series, that she's got everyone's number. And it makes sense that she would be keeping a secret file on them all. It's, it's more the detail of how it all comes apart that I found a little too much of a leap sometimes for me, just the detail of her setting up surveillance cameras and bugging everyone. I thought, literally, how is that happening? Um, not being found. Yes. And amongst all of the other aunts, I think all of them would, like the four founders, there was such a competition, certainly between her and Vidala, that I, I found a little bit hard to believe that just a conversation of spreading a seed of um, innuendo might dispel some of that. But totally get that she would have been keeping <laughs> keeping records from day Dot. No pun intended. But who would have thought dots. that
0: Aunt Lydia ends up being the person to bring down Gilead? The hero, like what? what? <laughs> was
1: she ever believing of Gilead's aims? Because I always assumed like she was religious and, and did initially. Believe, but this this sort of leaves it a bit more ambiguous as to whether she ever believed in what Gilead was trying to do. I don't think so, given her treatment in the stadium. But yeah, Yeah, I I think I was just saying in the last
2: podcast that I thought that she was the only one that was like uncorruptible, that she was the only true believer. But that's completely wrong in the context of the book.
3: Yeah, yeah, she's she's just
2: been playing the game the whole time. She's just been really bloody good at great actress,
3: exceptionally good (laughs) at playing that game. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I had to properly rethink Aunt Lydia when I got to the end because I couldn't believe that she was the hero and I sort of had to remind myself of what we did and didn't see in the book. And you could really understand where she was coming from. You could really understand that she was just like a, a woman doing her job who was just kind of ripped out of her office one day and, and then tortured for a week in sort of like horrific ways. And it was all very understandable and you sort of felt sorry for her. But they did make reference in the book to like, some of the evil and cruel things that she did in terms of punishing the handmaids and handmaids that had eyes missing and mm-hmm. things and things like that. And I just went, yeah, even though she was building this woman's world within Gilead, she did it very, very cruelly. And I don't think we ever saw her in the book once actually feel sorry for any of the female characters or even or even try and help them along. She was very much like you just, like, she was very harsh about it. Like, this is just mm-hmm. the world now. This is just the rules and that's it. It's also June's perspective of
3: that cruelty, mm. the first book, just to be devil's advocate there. Like it's it's June recording, seeing these hangings and the salvagings and whatnot. So she doesn't know what's going through Lydia's mind while she's doing that. Absolutely, it's cruelty and it's horrendous. But uh, yeah, curious. The, the different perspectives is the aunt's tale, really. And as we find out in the Testaments, it's the aunts who have
2: come up with a lot of these rules yeah. and the commanders who have taken the credit for it. Yeah. So I
0: guess my question is, because Aunt Lydia, she was given a choice in the very beginning we we actually saw the path that she could have taken which was there was a there was another aunt which she witnessed that when she was given the gun and told to shoot those women who didn't shoot those women instead she shot one of the guards next to her and then she was she was killed herself and so aunt lydia could have actually taken that route mm-hmm. but she but she didn't but i'm left at the end going should she have though because her whole life was in gilead she never actually escaped and so she just basically had to live under this cruel regime for the next couple of decades and enact all this cruelty herself and live just living in this hideous world. And I'm assuming she didn't get out. Like, no, no, she I, took no, the, the offence. She kills yeah. herself. She kills so herself yeah. What was the point, you know? Well, she's quite, was just revenge, she's was that bringing she's down point. Gilead. Yeah, <laughs> and instead of
3: shooting one commander, her bullet is the whole system, her cache yeah. of But how, secrets.
0: Much, how much did her work actually help build Gilead? By building this women's mm. world and by building mm. this whole environment, how much was she actually supporting Gilead? So what would Gilead look like if she wasn't alive? Yeah. Um, And that's kind of what I'm sort of left wondering.
1: If not her, then some other asshole would have taken her place. And at least if she's in there, she could work to dismantle it. I mean, maybe that's the rationale she
3: used. And I think the way that Vidala is played as the really harsh one who's Mm. coming up with alternate, um, cruel, more cruel ways to punish people. Like she's the alternate alpha hen, (laughs) as uh, Lydia calls them. So, yeah, it's a difficult one, as they always are with Lydia. Um, Do you think... Her arc, though, plays out as completely redemptive. Like, I think she's fully aware of all of the shit she's pulled over the years. And I don't think it's kind of played as heroic. I think it's played it Like, it's when she sees her house of cards starting to crumble, it's like, it's go time. Now, it's now or never. So she sends them out early. And it's always with self-interest. Yeah. So I don't think it's entirely, I'm going to crumble this regime. Yeah. yeah. I don't think she has... um
2: heroic Mm. intentions at the outset. I think she's like a pragmatist Mm. and she is self-interested and she's kind of doing what Offred slash June is doing in the Handmaid style. She's Mm. doing whatever she thinks she needs to do to survive and part of that is revenge, but I don't think... She's necessarily thinking it's a heroic move, but it's I, a, a, a revengeful move that she's yeah. playing.
1: no, I agree with that. I think that I think the fact that you know the kids get reunited with June and stuff is probably ancillary, almost to like her main aim of getting revenge. But I, I, to me, it does read really as a redemptive arc. I, I do not, I cannot see her in the same light now. Like you know, if she was colluding with Mayday to get this information out, and mm-hmm. she got June, her children back, after all all the horrible things she's done to the Handmaids, to me, this is. This is I see Lydia in a whole new
0: light now.
3: Mm. Tricky shit, huh?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I, I guess I guess I still I still can't like oh. that. I still just sort of think the amount of cruelty that you had to exact over that, and I just think she part of her enjoyed her life there because she was top dog. You know, mm-hmm. she had yeah. built a world where she was in charge, and all the cruelties that were handed out to everybody else, she had managed to find a way, just like the commanders, to like. Rise above all of them, Mm. so she actually had a pretty good life in there. Like, so
1: lots of oranges. There's a a line
2: in there somewhere about how she might not be proud of the things she's helped create, but sometimes she she kind of does feel proud of the things they've achieved within that um, overall structure that she secretly disagrees with.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah,
3: I like where it does sync up with the series about her having come from family law and like they really play up that element of her being a judge Mm. through and through, like to her very core, she kind of is a judge, but she also dabbled in school teaching. So
1: (laughs) there was that. It ties all in. Yeah, exactly. So enjoyed that. (laughs) One thing I will say is this book, while it sort of gives us an overall ending for how this entire story closes off, you know, June is reunited with her children. To me, I'm really excited to see how the hell June eventually gets out of Gilead. Like I'm still, I'm, I'm hoping the series takes us there and we see her eventual escape. So to me, I feel like there's still lots left in the show that that mm. makes me interested. Oh yeah, yeah not to mention Fred and Serena. You know their war crimes trial. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but I really want to see how how June finally is successful after many failed attempts of getting to Canada. Yeah, she's
2: she's given the TV. Margaret Atwood's given the TV series a few plot points to explore in future seasons. I think there was a mention of two assassination attempts yes. on yeah, uh, yeah. on June, and uh, she must escape. And also, it suggests that Nick escapes as well.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does it ruin it for anyone though, knowing that like eventually it's a happy end? Well, yeah. Fiona, I think that does for you. <laughs> yeah, it does.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, see the scene where she's reunited with the girls. I don't. I
3: don't buy that that actually happens.
1: Oh. Because she,
3: it's when Nicole comes in and out of sleep. She's just hallucinated Becca. Oh. I don't. I, I think the way it's framed, like she's she wakes up, her mother is there, and then she goes back to sleep. I, I think she's still hallucinating. Really? Yeah. That's how I like to read so it. That is so cruel. Because <laughs> I just don't buy that. June
1: and Luke and Nick and Nana and um, it is very neat. I <laughs> All agree catch up. Typically I would feel exactly the same but I think because Handmaid's Tale is so horrific and because so much horrible stuff has happened I'm like I will take the happy ending because it has been in a rough emotional ride. <laughs>
0: it's, it's funny right because with the original Handmaid's Tale people always said that the ending was ambiguous and you didn't know what happened so when I read the book that's what I was expecting to feel at the end and mm. I didn't if to me it was so obviously a happy ending like that yeah. I didn't understand why everyone thought that, you know, whatever what actually happened to her. Which is why I think season two is now controversial because they kept her in. But also she hadn't had Nicole, so she does need to stay in Exactly, she needs she to does have need had to. the baby for the baby to get out now. Yeah. The Handmaid's Tale, the original book, for me when I read that, it seemed quite obvious that June had a happy ending and that it was even um, of course, the academics in the future didn't actually know what happened to June. It was but, obvious to you. That's interesting. But, there, but, there, but there was a woman who had, a, who had escaped to Canada and she went into hiding and we never heard from her again. <laughs> and it, it's sort of like she had sort of laid all this stuff out of how June potentially had a happy ending, which is how I completely read that. Mm. So it makes sense to me that in the Testaments she is again giving June a happy ending.
1: Okay. She <laughs> just keeps <laughs> on trying to do that. Yes. <laughs> I love it. It's like it. The, the right thing to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah oh uh, yeah okay. I guess
3: I've got t v series head, <laughs> so like I'm just seeing all of what she's pulling in there, and I just think for all of that I don't think she can get up, but you know i yeah,
2: happy it did feel funny, wrong. it did feel a little bit off to me when there was this kind of. Very quickly wrapped up happy ending at mm. the end of the Testaments. It did feel a little bit insincere in a way. Like no, no, no,
3: it can't be that easy. <laughs>
0: <I'm> sorry, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's be that easy. I actually felt sad about the ending though. Like, even though it's kind of happy, I think my overwhelming feeling, but by, by the time I got to the book, was just sadness. And I just felt so sad for Hannah and Nicole because that is not the life that I wanted for them, and that's not how I wanted it to work out. And I was kind of devastated when we first meet. Well, she's called Agnes in the book. When you first meet Agnes and then you realise very quickly that it's Hannah and then to go, oh, she never got out. June never actually got mm. to save her at all, which is the whole thing I've wanted from like season <laughs> one and two um, and three. I was like, I just wanted Hannah to like get out of there and, and for them to be reunited and to go, that just doesn't happen. Instead, Hannah is raised by thankfully Tabitha who loves her, but... She's so indoctrinated into Gilead. Mm. Like, she is a true believer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like oh. I really was hoping that she'd have a bit of that activist fight in her, and that in, that like something would twig from like a young age that things were not quite right in this world. And it didn't. And so I was, I was quite devastated for her. And same with Nicole. Nicole, who actually gets out, did not have a fantastic life either. And the fact that June finally gets her daughters back, but not until they're already like sixteen. The plus. women, yeah.
3: They're quite old. It's quite a passage of time in this book. I, I can't quite work out exactly how old they are when they get out. But yeah, to your point, it's well. Um, Nicole is 16, I think,
1: which would make Agnes about 21-ish, I think. Yeah, I
3: think so. Mm. They spend well. Years they do their nine years as um pill girls, <laughs> yeah, uh, before they do their uh, expedition to Canada. So they're in there for nine years. So yeah, yeah. But, sorry, I'm taking away from your broader point, but.
0: Yeah, so I guess, so I know that it's got a happy ending but I actually felt really sad about it because it wasn't what I wanted for those two girls and also for June. So she kind of missed out on their entire childhoods and Hannah is just totally a Gilead girl, which is awful. Well, Agnes, Hannah, is a true believer
3: until it's all unravelled when Lydia starts to leave (laughs) little truth bombs in in the books in the library when when she's learning to read. Uh, Yeah, she's finding out all of the detail about how her... Commander father, Kyle, killed Tabitha. Yeah, the lies of Gilead are are becoming exposed to her. So that's what actually flips her. And like I do, what is at the core of this that I do love is that truth is what sets them free, literally, you know, in the most literal way possible. But for Nicole living as, what's her name when we first see her? Jade? She takes on the I'm name Jade. Jade. Daisy. that's right. Daisy. She's not living in the truth. She's she's sort of living in this false identity that she's had. But then when she learns she's Nicole, it's the truth that sends her into Gilead and back out. And then for Hannah, Agnes Victoria, she is by the end of it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um it's yeah, learning the rot the rotten core of uh, of Gilead is what flips her eventually. With the exposing of that parable of the um Yes. The concubine yes. is the first thing that exposes the lie like it's a tiny detail but it's very telling that the aunts that she put so much trust in they'd lie over that what else is everyone lying about oh actually everything
0: (laughs) I like that um I like that Margaret Atwood did include a bit in there from Agnes about just how it feels to sort of lose your faith yeah and and that it feels like a death it feels like a best friend has died and I just thought that was a really nice touch Mm -hmm. that she included that The other thing that I would say, which also made me sad, but also interesting, and Margaret so clever, she has thought about everything so well and to such great detail that even how baby Nicole was used. So after baby Nicole is out of Gilead, I thought it was so fascinating how Gilead actually used that to their advantage and how she became an icon and how she was a great tool to use to prove how evil the handmaids are which I just thought was, I thought was really fascinating and I thought was really clever, but it also was really sad because that great win that we had, which was was baby Nicole got out and I was went, oh, and actually it made life a whole lot worse for people inside Gilead. So it was, Mm -hmm. she's still, like Margaret Atwood is just so savage in so many ways, which (laughs) is glorious and I enjoy it, but it wasn't quite like the happy escape tale Oh no, I you know it like, wasn't a big
3: oof. strike against the regime. They just recalibrated and <laughs> made it a win for them. She was like a martyr. She, yeah, totally yeah.
1: poster girl. She was for... very convenient for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
3: To the extent that when she comes back in and they're working out how to actually articulate that she's back, yeah, she might actually end up being killed. <laughs> they <laughs> might kill baby Nicole. Yeah, it doesn't work
1: it doesn't work out. One thing, just picking up on um, your point, Natalie, about um, Hannah's sort of indoctrination and her religiosity. One thing that struck me in this book that just like gave me a slight flashback to childhood a little bit was there's parts where um, Agnes is being told that girls are like flowers, precious flowers, and they need to be protected, or or pearls, precious pearls. And I literally actually remember being told at some point in my childhood that girls were like flowers and pearls and needed to be protected. Yeah, and I can't remember who told me this. It might have been a religious teacher or something, but I remember learning this and I remember relaying it to a classmate once like I must have been eight or nine years old and trying to explain yeah girls are like pearls and I don't know if this is a post hoc application of what I was thinking but I feel like I thought even in that moment that made no sense like hang on why are we like pearls actually what what is it about us that makes us so fragile and in need of protecting but like now I think back to that and I'm like god that like for her to write that into the book for anyone who's had a a somewhat religious childhood where, you know, like ideas about feminine morality and stuff are a huge part of that. Like that really speaks to that and that just flashed me right back to that time in elementary school where I was like, yeah, girls are like pearls. Mm-hmm. And now I think about it and I'm like, what the hell? I mean, that's an object. You're literally saying mm-hmm. women yeah. are like objects. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: And it, you see variations of that throughout, sort of just the, the idea that women need to be protected. Women are uh, something to be, I don't know, yeah, precious flowers really is the, is the sort of the narrative. So it, it's not unfamiliar, <laughs> this, yeah. uh, this way of speaking about women.
1: Yeah. And you must not sully those
0: petals. <laughs> yeah. And so so when Agnes is talking about that in the book, we see her as when she's learning all that. And she's, and she's also a little bit confused by it, I think, except that her testimony is from the future. So she kind of knows now that mm. that was wrong. Yes. Yeah. But uh, the whole thing was eerily believable unfortunately in so many ways and even the part when aunt Lydia did not realize what was happening when she still had her job as a judge and apparently there was like some people had already read the signs and they had already fled but one of the things that got me was how Margaret Atwood describes how it actually happened the coup that happened and the lies that were told and one of the things that they told everybody was that it was actually islamic terrorists
1: ah they use that as a Mm. convenient scapegoat too yeah right
0: and then they slowly revealed that you know actually no it wasn't and instead it's this new regime gilead and we're just now here to help you and help get all this back under control again and so then they sort of pitched themselves as saviors but i was like that would work. I was like, yeah. that's, that's yeah, completely totally. believable. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I just the amount of detail that I think Margaret Atwood has gone to to think of everything, and I thought that the Pearl Girls was actually an ingenious device as well.
3: Yeah, this new class of women, you young women as a way to get more women into Gilead. Yeah, curious new outfits. Obviously, I was going to say I'm,
1: I'm interested to see these outfits on screen because they sound quite nice. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, they'll be um, pretty. Curious. So yeah, so aunts in training really, dispatched to Canada because that's the sloppy, um what's the phrase? Sloppily neutral. Canada <laughs> is mean, yeah. the Republic of Texas is Sounds very right. very hardcore neutral, but Canada's a bit more porous. We and... must always appease the Americans slash Iliadians. <laughs> <laughs> so, um yeah, so they're dispatched there to try and recruit to get more women in. Which side note begs the question of where are they getting handmaids? Like where is the new generation of handmaids
1: being well, some created. of the girls at the Pearl Girls Recruit... I, you know, there was um, a mention of a Mexican girl who proved too hard to break that was turned into a handmaid. Right. So, I don't, But I don't think that's, like, critical numbers enough to, like, fully... That's what I was kind of wondering, because, like, yeah. the,
3: the handmaids we know... This is 15 years on now, so they've probably hit menopause. So I'm just trying to logistically think, where are they getting all their handmates? But uh, anywho, by the way, I that- didn't even think of that. That's a great point, though. You're right. They I was really need obsessing def- over the details all the
1: time. Oh, and actually, that's that makes me think of one thing that I thought about, which was, uh, you know, Agnes and Becca being allowed to become aunts. And I would have thought like literally surely only infertile women who have been proven to be infertile could be aunts because they would not waste a working womb. So I found that really weird that they were allowing young women to go into the sisterhood of the aunts. That's where I struggle too because
3: Lydia also says to Judd about the spate of pedophiles at work who are ruining... Young girls, mm. in her words, before marriage, and like no one wants to get married because they've all been pestered by these creeps. So they want to become aunts. So yeah, I, I wondered about that because that seemed like more. There's must be more aunts than wives and handmaids. Yeah. Now, the way that the yeah. way they're carrying on. But
0: I guess that's why the girls are being forced into marriage so young. Is as soon as they get their period, they now get taken out of the school they were in to now get, to get put in wife training school. Mm. And it's because they're so desperate for babies. They just need to start them as soon as possible. Mm. So I guess that's I guess that's the other thing that they've
3: done. Which, again, like, you know, if they are so desperate to have the children, then, what, yeah, why would they put the fertile young women? Like abuse victims, yeah, I would think in the world of Gilead that we've come to understand, I, I don't think they'd actually be all that concerned about them. It's more what, yeah. how can they service the regime? So, yeah. yeah, for me that was a little bit of a... I guess it was,
0: well, they had to be, I think, especially for Becca, they had to be really at risk. So Becca was a high case, high risk of either killing herself or killing the commander. Hmm. And so when it's that high risk, Lydia has to do something. But Hannah is different. And that's what I found interesting. And this is, I think, where I think the TV show could explore that I would quite enjoy, is why did Aunt Lydia save Hannah from Commander Judd? She really did not have to do that. It's part of the plan. At all. So I get why Aunt Lydia saved Becca because I think the risk was so high. But the risk wasn't high with Hannah Hmm. and Aunt Lydia saved her from Commander Judd. And Hannah, unfortunately, as much as she did not want to marry him, she was not going to kill herself and nor was she going to kill him. I don't really think that was going to happen. But Aunt Lydia stepped in and basically saved her from death, which is what would have happened if she had married Commander Judd. Why did she do that?
3: Well, it was part of the plan. She, I think this all syncs up to when baby Nicole's been found and, of course, Lydia knows that Hannah is baby Nicole's... Why am I calling her baby now? <laughs> is, ..is Nicole's uh, sister. So that's where she saw the opportunity to bring her plan in, I think, because she, she planted the seed of doubt in um, in Agnes's mind. So the timelines start to sync up with the testimonies of Nicole and Hannah, Agnes, sorry, with all the names. Yes, so that that's why Lydia acted that way because she was her long game was to put the sisters together in some way, I think. But I, if I the figure. aim was to
1: bring down Gilead, she only really needed baby Nicole and the microdot business for that. She didn't really actually need to, I don't think, get Agnes to meet up with her sister. I mean, I, I read that as maybe her, you know, repenting for how she treated June and she really wanted to... Do
0: something nice. Well, I don't think I, so. Um, well, yeah. see, that's what I, I was because so. my feeling on that was, which I thought would be good for the TV show to explore. I thought, does Aunt Lydia f- owe June something? Did they, in the years that June was in there, did they come up with some sort of some sort of pact or favor or something? Because I just thought it was interesting that Aunt Lydia seemed to favor Hannah and mm. and save her, and she didn't really have to.
3: Yeah, I figured she needed that bond to propel Nicole. Out again, or there was something like she needed hmm. to reveal the truth to Agnes to make her want to
0: like to, to, f- to make a flip, factor, really,
1: yeah.
3: Okay, to make a flip. Mm. Okay,
1: hmm. can we speak about Becca? Yeah, we can speak about Becca. <laughs> Poor Becca and <laughs> Immortel. So she, she did kill herself in the end. I thought she was just going to hide. Yeah, I was a bit confused what happened? about that. She died in the
3: water tank. Yeah. Or did, was that
1: an accident? Did she actually like not mean to kill herself? Or yes. I, don't, I don't understand. I got, I got the impression she meant to hide in the water tank and then she accidentally drowned. Or, was that, is I, that how she I was actually, meant to read it? I think so, but then I, maybe she was actually so sad that the two girls left and she had no sisters and that she knew she was actually never going to get out of Gilead. That I, she did
0: kill herself? I don't you in know. theory? Yeah, I thought that it sort of dovetailed nicely back into that concubine story. And mm. that was a story that Becca was really upset by. Like that mm. was like when, when, she, when she heard that story, she cried and she had to leave the room, I think, or she, or she needed a hug and the aunts didn't like <laughs> that kind of emotion and affection. And she was really upset by it. And Aunt Este ended up telling her that actually what the concubine had done was sacrifice herself and i think that that really struck a chord with her she never forgot that mm. and that's why she was so dismayed later when she realized that the story she was told was actually wrong and that that woman had not sacrificed herself instead she had just been put out to be raped and murdered yeah. but i thought how interesting that the that the girl who was so moved by that story ends up being the one that ends up sacrificing herself yep. so that the other girls can get out so it all it actually it actually fit for me
3: yeah. I, I agree with that. I think she did intentionally do that. And I think it does sync nicely up with the concubine story because especially when she took off her clothes, like she presented them and laid them out. Like it wasn't, she was still lying in there hoping to get out. I think she knew. So she'd presented herself for, um, for that trait.
0: But the part which actually where the book really got me emotionally was when her statue was unveiled at the very, very end. Mm. I'm glad they never forgot her. But it was funny because like, like the book... Didn't really, um, didn't tug at my heartstrings so much. I think I was frequently horrified, but not like upset to the point of tears. Um, Same. Because there was was lots of horror in there about like, let's face it. Girls being killed, girls being raped, girls being sexually assaulted—like, there's a lot of bad stuff in there. It's also after-the-fact
3: testimony, like it, it's all um, it's a little bit removed. hindsight. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's real world. Did
0: you cry in *The Handmaid's Tale* though, ever, when you were reading it? No, I didn't. Yeah. Same. Whereas I did in this, and it was—and it was actually Becca. It was when it was when they unveiled her statue, and um, and that's the part that got me. And I was like, oh, her sacrifice, and they never—and they never forgot her. And you know. yeah, yeah. No, I didn't cry, but that lovely. was lovely. Yeah. And it invokes all of the, the
3: psalms and the passages, that the mottos that are referenced earlier with, they're all sort of,
0: they're all there on the statue. She was holding forget-me-nots. Oh, speaking of statues. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was like a savage in the book. Well, there's heaps of savage parts, but that I enjoyed about this about the statue because the book starts with Aunt Lydia seeing her own statue. Yep. And from Aunt Lydia's point of view, it's actually kind of flattering because it's when she was like younger and thinner and the woman who actually made the statue was better than the previous woman who was doing it. So she actually looked like a human woman. <laughs> she didn't have crazy eyes. Yes. <laughs> Whereas the line you get at the end when you find out that that statue ended up being found at someone's house and there was just a line in there which says that it was basically a, like it was really poorly made <laughs> yeah that's right that's right and I, just, I just thought it probably would be because they weren't exactly fostering the arts in Gilead yeah. although I did find it interesting that it was a
1: female sculptress that made it mm. I would have thought you know they, they wouldn't have been allowed to create all that much apart from like their little embroidery yeah mm-hmm. but I thought that was interesting no that's true yeah <laughs> And on the statue at the end, in loving memory, Becca,
3: Aunt Immortel, this memorial was erected by her sisters, Agnes and Nicole, and their mother, their two fathers, their children and their grandchildren, and in recognition of the invaluable services provided by A. L. A bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. Love is as strong as death.
0: And that's the end of well, it. That so nice. I know. Um, so I really hope that... Um See, I'm all for a happy ending <laughs> and I really hope I really hope that that means that they got to live freely in Canada, that June didn't have to hide anymore, that Nicole didn't have to hide anymore, that I'm hoping that Gilead fell pretty quickly. Well, and... I think we
1: heard in the epilogue that they went on to have children, Didn't don't the girls?
0: Yes, Do Do I all remember and that there's correctly? a reference to their children and grandchildren. Yeah, and the, yeah, um, so they sound like they, you know... So it sounds like they ended up being able, because I don't because Nicole was not grown up being free in that sense. She had a very, which which is what I found interesting was that even though she was out of Gilead, her life in Canada was incredibly sheltered. She wasn't, she pretty much was barely let out, out of the house. They chose a school which had strict attendance. She wasn't even allowed to go to the mall after school. Her life she said was really boring it was basically school and home and and the second hand st- shop, which sounded great <laughs> by the way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how did she end up with those adoptive parents? What happened to Luke and Moira? Yes, this, well, this is what, is what I want to know. The, yeah, yeah. How did she end up with the and where where the hell are Luke and Moira? Yep. So in well, my, Luke's in Mayday, apparently. Luke, yeah. Luke's
3: part of Mayday. Which is no surprise, really. Moira
1: Ada felt like a bit of a Moira character to me. And I wonder if that was just Moira with a different name. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Ada felt like a Moira or a June to me. Ah. But um I spent a while thinking that Ada was June yeah, and then once oh, right. and then once they saw her photograph in the bloodlines files yeah. I realized okay it's not it's not Ada then but, but the way
3: she sort of was evasive about well why didn't she come and like she said I d- I didn't get photos to you there was a, a phrasing that sounded like I didn't have to see photos because I saw you but um yeah but that was a bit of a red herring I think
0: Yeah I figured they were the characters that we know but they gave them different names and so in in my mind even in the book it was Melanie and I've forgotten his name. Mm. Um, Neil. <laughs> Melanie and Neil. In my mind, it was Emily and her partner. Like, mm. um, oh, right. Because things are a bit different in the book world. And so, yeah, same with Ada. I thought that in the end she was a great Moira. Mm, like, yeah. <laughs> I thought she could also be Emily because she was um, talking about being part of the
3: escape of Nicole. She was, oh. she was um, oh, I, I a guide. Oh, I missed that. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, we're all trying to... <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to put square pegs well, around walls here. We have a lot here, of but, but, yeah. expectations for the show now. <laughs> there's a lot that needs to be sorted. Emily? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ada does intrigue me because at one point she says the same thing that Lydia, Lydia repeats a couple of pages later. She uses an expression that was odd to me. When Nicole is asking questions, Ada replies, least said, soonest mended. And then Lydia uses it about mm. 15 pages later. Yeah, And I thought, hmm, Ada has been around Lydia. Or oh. there's some, like she's echoing... They're they're reflecting each other a little bit in the language. So I thought, has Ada been an aunt? Or is she more aunt and
1: had face-to-face time with (laughs) Lydia? Exactly, yeah, which which was part
0: of what me still thinking that Ada was June, but she's not, so. I figure that everyone that Nicole pretty much grew up around all used to be in Gilead. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, she would have... So in that case, Ada would have been exposed Mm. to that at some point. But she says she got
3: out when she saw the signs, so she wasn't a handmaid necessarily. Well, she um, said she wasn't.
0: I'm just going to do a very quick shout-out to Shunamite. Is that how you pronounce it? I could not yeah. figure it out. Which Shun- was a great part. It's, a great, it's a great thing about the audiobook, actually. Oh, right. Because <laughs> <Of laughs> <course. laughs> <laughs> you do actually realise how they um, pronounce various names and things. I really quite enjoyed her. Was but... she a bit of a, like a pious little shit character? To me, yeah. she was. Yeah. She was actually... Um, to me, she was Lydia Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. She was <laughs> she was just that sort of completely self-involved, not smart in any way to look at any danger ahead. She Social just, climber. Yeah, she just wanted the big marriage, and, and she's got four masters, you know. Mm. <laughs> she was- yeah, I, got, I, I needed that light relief, and also Aunt Lydia did save her in the end. Yes, yeah, she Ooh, did. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, she did from poisoning, Lead poisoning, or some because sort of rat poisoning. Rat poisoning. God, that guy was an asshole. So I would say, and so speaking of Jane Austen, there was a line in the book which reminded me of that fantastic opening line of Pride and Prejudice about every rich man must be in want of a wife. And Margaret Atwood has this line about Commander Judd, which is just, it's just, it's just horrifying, which is his wives have a habit of dying. Commander Judd is a great believer in the restorative powers of young women. Ugh. Gross. Ugh. <laughs> so So um, I kind of like that. As much as I'm conflicted about Aunt Lydia, I do like how she managed to um, exact her revenges. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I completely buy that element of the story.
3: That, And I, I love that ultimately it's her that plants the seed that then causes this whole infighting amongst all the commanders. I love it. Yeah. Part of me just still... <laughs> how? How? Yeah, and also the the fact that she's so reluctant to share anything about herself with the other aunts really makes me question why she would be so frank in the writings, just hidden away in the in the library there. It just doesn't gel to me that she wouldn't share a single thing, but then she's telling everything and and revealing things in the micro dots. I mean, you would, that, that's a way to tell them to bring Nicole, but just the oversharing compared to this really Maybe it was the outlet
1: she needed. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> Probably. The, I, I feel like I can understand that almost. You'd be so desperate to say something. But you just say it to <laughs> paper,
0: <laughs> and she's so she's so conflicted in herself as well. Yeah. Even even when she's writing this, like she said, um, in her mind it was the life that she was forced to lead. Yes, but even when she was saying that, she kind of knew that she was sort of being a little bit too kind to herself. Because she did have the option. Yeah, totally. Like she,
3: I love that. Like she's very aware of her complicity in mm-hmm. this, and more than complicity, really. Like she's the chief enforcer in in the regime. Yeah, so I don't think she's entirely off the hook as the hero here. I think it's a part of what is so incredibly complex about her.
1: Also, um. can I say it sounds like Gilead never really expands beyond New England? Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it sounded like from the book, and there's there's talk of maps at some point, but like there's Canada to the north. There's, um, you know, there's California still not on side. Um, Texas is definitely not on side. They only get oranges every now and then because, you know, stuff from Florida isn't reliable, I think. Um, So it sounds like Gilead never really actually grew much bigger than it was from its New England roots, which I thought was interesting. I would have thought, you know, given the battles in Chicago from (laughs) the TV series and the rest, they might have gained a bit more ground. Or maybe they have and we just haven't been explained that. But it sounded to me like it stayed quite contained still. Yeah,
3: and the fact Texas is a republic, that's not the case in the TV series.
1: I don't know if we've been told about Texas in the TV series. I can't remember.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, Chicago's a flare-up and Florida was always questionable. Well, we've seen the maps from the TV series, actually. So I think it's a revelation that Texas is now independent and fiercely so. Sounds about right. Yeah. Just a side note, I thought it was interesting that Aunt Lydia's testimonies and her meticulous records are... um, hidden in the volume about Cardinal Newman, who is going to be a saint next month. His, oh, really? His, um, yeah, canona- canonisation is happening in October. Ah. Which oh, wow. Which is curious. Spot. Yeah, I know. So when it was proposed that he would become a saint, Pope Benedict, who was the Pope at the time, said that Newman had applied, quote, his keen intellect and his prolific pen to many of the most pressing subjects of the day. So I thought that was very Lydia-esque. It's probably a reason why he's nice. he's the volume in which her... Disclosures are contained. And he, the second miracle that is what puts you on the path towards canonization was dealing with the healing of a woman with life-threatening complications in her pregnancy. Oh. Anyway, that's a little side note on Cardinal
0: Newman. Oh, Great well, trivia done. there. That's awesome. <laughs> One of the things I could have said in them, um, the thing that stood out to me was just how shadowy the handmaids were in this book. Yes. I really enjoyed it because we know them so well. Yeah. <laughs> but to actually get the view of how everyone else sees them and how how Hannah was raised to see them as scary, that they were kind of weird and creepy wandering around in pairs and you weren't, you weren't meant to look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it throws her so much to know that her mother was one yes. and that she and Becca share that connection
3: because they both have that and they were both ghosted a bit at school because of that. Like it's, it's, it casts shame on them
0: really. And they're calling them sluts when they don't even know what yeah. sluts actually means. Yep. But the how... Anyway, I just thought it was... There were sort of these... The Handmaid's were just sort of on the edges of this world. And for us, Aunt Lydia is around handmaids all the time because our perspective is the handmaids. But in this book, Aunt Lydia is barely ever around them. You're like they really, are, I I, I kind of like that. Um, the handmaids Tale, which was just so about handmaids, and that is it. That I love that Margaret Atwood has just pretty much removed them from like yeah. this world.
3: Yeah, she's expanded the world really. Like so, mm-hmm. it's yeah. When Lydia's not sticking a nose in at the Waterford residence, um, yeah, she's off <laughs> at Ardua Hall. <laughs> yeah, keep the notes on everyone It's great
0: Anyway, I, so I quite I think because we know The handmade so well It was okay that they Were these shadowy figures On the edges
3: Yeah, we know they're there Like that yeah. we've had This blinkered view of them mm-hmm. um, Exclusively But now, yeah To expand a little bit And see the girls See the poor girls See see what the aunts Are getting up to
1: um, I looked up the, the Season 3 map of Gilead And it is confined To the northeast mm. And Texas was Rebel-held territory So okay. maybe they just Yeah, never expanded mm-hmm. Heidi, you've missed a little bit. We're going to welcome you
2: back in right now. Yeah, I've, I've just stepped back into the room after um, stepping out for a few minutes to put baby Greta to sleep, which I'm really sad about because I had so many thoughts <laughs> I wanted to put in. But I guess uh, having missed a little bit of the conversation, the one thing I really wanted to talk about um, before we wrap up was like the interesting context of The Testaments being written as a sequel to a book while there is still a television series yeah. mid series happening and just the interesting interplay between what is of the TV series and what is of the book and how they've come together for the Testaments. Mm. Like I love that Hannah and baby Nicole are characters that are only named in the TV series and yet they feature so heavily as characters in this book. And I'd just love to be in the writer's room or be overhearing the conversations between Bruce Miller and, and Margaret Atwood and and how they discussed what was going to happen in each and mm-hmm. navigate that interesting path. Because there is an element where I feel like the series has been spoiled now that I know <laughs> what's happened at the end of the Testaments <laughs> and how it all ends. I'm kind of like, oh, a little bit of my desire to to kind of watch and see what happens has gone now. But at the same time, there's elements on which they've diverted, like uh, Lydia's backstory. Mm. Um, and I'd still use a little true to that too, though. They're, like it they're, they're in. compatible, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think Nick is not a commander in the in the book it makes a reference to um he's so deep underground baby nicole's mm -hmm. yeah baby nicole's father being underground and not a commander and not of rank and all this thing um good for him (laughs) yeah it's just it's sort of it, it fascinates me that if had you not seen the tv series and you came to read the read the testaments after reading a handmaid's tale there's all these elements that you would not appreciate because you hadn't seen the tv series you wouldn't appreciate the baby nicole yeah escapes in the tv show
3: like you kind of need to watch the tv series to fully appreciate the book and I, i've
1: not so seen like that a trilogy.
0: situation
3: before yeah yeah, they feed into each other yeah, yeah otherwise you're picking it up because she gets out she thinks she might be pregnant but you don't know for sure yeah and wait how's how'd she stay to have a baby and yeah, then how'd yeah. the baby get out and now she's
2: yeah it, like it, it's it, great it's like a, it, a margaret has done a great job of making a standalone book that you could just read like you don't really need to have read The Handmaid's Tale. You don't really need mm. to have seen the TV show, but they both add to this new book. Yep. But it's just yeah, really interesting the fact that she's writing a sequel while the TV series is running and she's kind of reclaimed ownership of the narrative in a mm. way by giving it this decided ending. Yeah, but has still given
3: the show has enough given, scope yeah. to re- yes, um, so. reconcile the June parts. Um, yeah, of course, there is no Fred or Serena in this and there's no mention of a plane load of kids getting out. Oh, man, yeah, <laughs> that's right. um, Remember that? Uh,
0: so that was interesting. I, I actually th- really miss them. <laughs> Fred and Serena. Yeah, to be, like, to have delved um, in back into this world again and um, and then when I got to the end of it, I was thinking about, what wasn't there, and I went, oh, there was no Fred and Serena. I went, oh, I actually do really enjoy them in a TV show a lot, you know. So to have gone back into this world and not have them, yeah, yeah. But also, it could have happened
3: within these fifteen years that um, this commander, like their, their their story of the would want to be escapees, all part of the baby Nicole part. That that makes sense. It's you know, it's not covered, but it's kind of in sync. So that's all fine. Of course, no Lawrence. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, by
0: the way, this does mean that. Serena is sort of in there but not in there because um, my fear was that Serena was going to find a way to get her hands on baby Nicole once okay. she um, got out. Oh, yeah,
1: good point. And
0: so at the very last episode we saw that she got arrested as well and in my view I thought that meant that baby Nicole had escaped Serena's clutches. And reading this book, she has. Yeah.
3: No, fair point. Yep. I I momentarily had a thought, is Ada Serena? But no. No.
1: Serena's rotting in jail. All
3: right. Well, (laughs) I think that about wraps it up. Um, (laughs) So now, obviously this book is now out in, where are we, September, uh, and there's another season of The Handmaid's Tale, at least one more, yet to come. How do we think that might be informed by this or this will guide future seasons. What do we what do we think? Where are we going with this? Sana?
1: I don't think the next season is our last one. I have actually no information to be making this judgment, but I my guess is that there's two more seasons and I think like next season we might see some of the assassination attempts on June mm-hmm. and then the final season we'll see June actually get out to, you know, marry up with how the the book sort of ends her storyline. So that's what I like that's the very overarching arc that I see for two seasons. I've just given them an extra
0: mm. season.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? Natalie.
0: I'm so intrigued to watch Aunt Lydia now. Yeah. Like, I'm just really fascinated to see what we will see of her next season. I think that we'll all be watching her a little bit differently now. Mm. And even though I know, now that we know that June's going to get out and it's, and it's going to be fine, it still has not ruined the next season for yeah. me. And there's parts that I would really like to see because I... I kind of feel that there is some sort of June Lydia relationship or deal made or something that goes on there, then I and I would be very intrigued to find out how their relationship plays out. Very good. Haiti? Well Margaret Atwood's been writing this book for quite a while. I think
2: she's she made some comment about how she's been thinking about the sequel for twenty five years. <laughs> um but I think she's been asked about a sequel for asked years about a sequel. Too. And I know that you know, the showrunners of the TV series have been working in close collaboration with her the whole time and want to stick closely to the original. So I wouldn't be surprised if when Bruce Miller mentioned a while back that he had a 10-season arc in mind that he already had an idea of where The Testaments was going to go. And I'd love to see elements of The Testaments of the actual book incorporated into later seasons of The Handmaid's Tale if it gets Mm. that far down the track. I'd love to see a few seasons of June's. Struggle and her escape, and then I'd love to see a season of Aunt Lydia, and um, yes, and the Testament. So yeah, I'd love to see it incorporated into the the current show.
3: Mm. Yeah, same. Um, yeah, I do. Th- I I don't see how this could all wrap up in one one more season yeah. on with you. Um, yeah, it hasn't ruined it for me at all. Partly because I'm still clinging to the hope that it'll be a bit different. <laughs> yeah, I. I struggle with it being so literal and so happy. I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm sitting in 2019 and, you know, <laughs> seeing all the terrible people <laughs> in power In power and <laughs> truth isn't as um, highly prized as it should be. And, yeah, I don't know, I'm sort of struggling a little bit that everything's going to be, <laughs> everyone's going to live happily ever after. But, um, yeah, I'm still fascinated with how it all plays out because, yes, absolutely the storyline with June. I've always thought that she was going to die in there. Happy to be yeah. proven wrong and I want to see how it works out. But, um yeah, there's so much life left in this yet that I, oh God, I'm so here for it. <laughs> um, but we've got a bit of a long wait. So thank you for listening. We hope that helped. And we're really fascinated about your reactions to this book as well and where and how you think it's going to sync up with The Handmaid's Tale. Thank you to my co It's great to see you all again. Uh, thank you, Sanne Kadar, Natalie Hamley, Haiti Island and little baby Greta, who's now asleep. <laughs> um, And thank you for listening to Eyes on Gilead and for making our show a part of your Handmaid's Viewing experience and now your Testaments book reading experience too. Tell us what you think about this book. Um, You can reach out on Twitter and you can find me at anything but Fifi. Natalie, where can we find you? At Natalie Hambly. Sana, where can
1: we find you? At Sana underscore Kadara. And Haiti? At Haiti Island.
3: And feel free to leave feedback and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. While we're talking about Twitter, do we have any tweets that... um, that we want to give a shout out to? I want to give a little shout out to Hanny
2: Hawkins who a couple of weeks ago in relation to the TV show and not the book tweeted us kind of commenting that the TV show hadn't tackled sex abuse beyond the handmaids and... Um, linked a very intriguing article about a religious sect in New Zealand called Gloria Gloria Vale and some uh, allegations of child sex abuse that had come out there. But I thought it was very insightful of her because she essentially predicted a lot of the themes of the Testaments in that, yes, it hasn't dealt with the kind of uh, sex abuse of of children in this kind of totalitarian, Mm. authoritarian society. And Mm. so... Very insightful of her.
0: Yeah, good. Can I say? Yeah, I found that um, article on Gloria Vale very interesting, and it sort of gives a hint actually to what life is going to be like for Hannah now that she's out of Gilead. And so the people that left Gloria Vale, they say that it took them seven years to integrate properly back into normal life because they had never had a bank account. They had mm. never gone grocery shopping before. Like their lives were just so very, very different that they had so much to catch up on, just filling out forms probably to get welfare. You know, yeah. like everything was just so different that it took seven years. Mm. Yeah, so I was thinking about that when I was mm. thinking about poor Hannah Agnes having to integrate into normal life, I'll call mm. it.
3: Yeah, yeah, fair point. So tweet using the hashtag Eyes on Gilead if you have some thoughts of your own and feel free to leave feedback and give us a rating wherever you get your podcast from. Handmaid's Tale Season 3, if you want to go and re-watch that, is available as a box set at SBS On Demand. You can rewatch that until Season 4 comes. It's a little way off yet. So what are we going to do to get a Handmaid's fix until then? Who knows? Eyes on Gilead is produced by me, Fiona Williams, with editing and mixing by Jeremy Wilmot. You
2: don't own me.
3: Until next time, sometime next year, (laughs) don't let the bastards grind you down.